Book Three, Chapter Ten of Lady Bridget in the Never Never Land by Rosa Prayed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. From Joan Gildea to Colin McKeith, written about a year later. My dear Colin, I find it impossible to recognize my old friend in the hard, business-like communication you sent me from Leichardt's Town. I almost wish that you had allowed the lawyer you consulted to put the case before me instead. It would have seemed less unfitting, and I could have answered it better, but I quite appreciate your objection to taking the lawyer into your confidence as regards the personal matters you mentioned to me. It would be cruelly unjust, I think quite unpardonable in you to bring forward the name of Mr. Willoughby Maule in connection with Bridget. Not that he would mind that. I honestly believe that he would snatch gladly at any means for inducing Bridget to marry him. Whether she would do so, if you were to carry through this amazing scheme of yours, it's impossible for me to say. At present, she certainly prefers to keep him at a distance. He has never been to Castle Gaverick, and except for a few visits on business to London, that is where she has lived since she came over here. Your letter followed me to Jamaica, where I have been reporting on the usual lines for the imperialist, but of course I couldn't answer it until I had talked it over with Bridget, and, as you desired, had obtained her views on the matter. It was a shock to her to realise that your reason for never writing to her, and for refusing to let her write to you, was lest that might affect the legality of these proceedings, which I understand you have contemplated from the beginning of your quarrel. Bridget is too proud to show you how deeply she is wounded by your letter. All she has to say is that if you really wish to take this action, she will not oppose it. But, Colin, do you really wish it? I refuse to believe that you seriously contemplate divorcing your wife. You must know that you have not the accepted grounds for doing so. As for the law you quote, which allows divorce in cases of two years' so-called desertion, I can only say that I consider it a blot on Leichhardt's land legislation. Divorce should be for one cause only, the cause to which our Lord gave a qualified approval, and Bridget has never been unfaithful, in act or desire, to her husband. I would maintain this in spite of the most damning testimony, and you must in your heart believe it also, Besides, your testimony is ridiculously inadequate. I am glad, however, that you have at last made your accusations in detail, in order, as you say, that I, and Bridget incidentally, I suppose, should fully understand why you are adopting this attitude towards her. I am glad, too, that you do not mean to make any use of the evidence against her, and are prepared to take all the blame for the unhappy state of affairs between you. I write sarcastically. Why, it would be monstrous if you had any other intention. Oh, how I hate this pedantic roundabout way of writing. I feel inclined to tear up these sheets. I've torn up two already. Really, you've made it so difficult for me to treat you naturally. If I could talk to you, I'd make you understand in five minutes. But I can't. So there. Naturally, I had heard of your bringing Mr. Willoughby Maul to the station. And when I learned what followed, naturally, also, I concluded that you had discovered his identity with that of the man Bridget had once cared for. I blame myself horribly, but for my carelessness you would never have read that letter of Biddy's. She knows all about it now. And your insane jealousy would not have jumped to conclusions, at any rate, so quickly. And perhaps if I had not bound you to secrecy you'd have had the matter out with her, which would have probably saved all this trouble. Anyhow... I can't imagine that you would have left her alone with him as you did, and with bad feeling between you, at the mercy of her own reckless impulses, and that of Willoughby Maul's ardent love-making. 
She doesn't pretend that it was an ardent, or that he did not do his best to get her to run away with him, or that the old infatuation did not come back to a slight extent. Is it surprising after your conduct? No wonder she compared his devotion favourably with yours. Colin, your leaving her in such conditions wasn't the act of a man, of a gentleman. I speak strongly, but I can't help it. I know your stubborn pride and obstinacy, but you were wrong. You have disappointed me. Oh, how bitterly you have disappointed me. Then there was that business about the blacks. What a fool you were, and how brutally self-opinionated. I don't wonder Bridget thought you an inhuman monster. Now I have said my worst, and you must take it as it is meant, and forgive me. As for the true story of that night's adventures, out of which your police inspector seems to have made such abominable capital, I used to think police inspectors were generally gentlemen, but they don't seem to be out on the lure. I've got all the details from Biddy. A tragicomic business, so truly of the bush, bushy. I could laugh over it if it weren't for its serious consequences. Of course, Biddy got up to turn out the goats which were butting with their horns under the floor of her bedroom. I've often got up myself in the old days at Bungerham, when stray calves got into the garden, or the cockatoo disturbed our slumbers. Do you remember Polly? and how she would keep shouting out on a moonlight night, "'The top of the morning to you!' because we'd forgotten to put her blanket over the cage. I believe there were several occasions when you and I met in midnight Dishabelle and helped each other to restore tranquillity. If anyone was to blame for Biddy's adventure, it was your wooden water joey, or your Chinaman, or whoever's business it may have been to see that the goats were properly penned. Naturally, Mr. Maul, when he was disturbed too, came and did the turning out for Bridget, and shepherded the creatures to the fold. Then, meanwhile, she saw the black gin sneaking in at Mr. Maul's back window to steal the key, and would it have been philanthropic impulsive Biddy if she hadn't helped in the work of rescue, and sent the two sinners with a, bless you, my children, off into the scrub. It was like Biddy, too, to go and put the key back in Mr. Maul's bedroom, and to scribble that ridiculous note in French, so that he shouldn't go blundering to the hide-house and hurry up the pursuit. I told Bridget how the inspector had watched her go out of Mr. Maul's room, and had grabbed the note afterwards, and shown it to you. She had forgotten altogether about that note, supposed that, of course, it had reached its proper destination. She couldn't remember either exactly what she had written, except that she wanted to word it, so that if there should be any accident, nobody, except Mr. Maul, for of course they'd determined on the release before that, should understand to what it referred. So she didn't mention any name. She believes she dashed off some words he had quoted to her about love triumphant and securing happiness and freedom by flight. And then she put in something referring to a scene they'd had that day, in which he had begged her to fly with him, and she had made him promise to leave next morning, pacifying him by a counter-promise to write. She told me about her fever and ague, and you don't need proof of that after the state in which you found her and how Mr. Maul carried her to her room and left her there after a few minutes. She doesn't remember anything after that, until she came out of the fever and saw you, with the face and manner I can well imagine, standing by her bedside. I am sure that Bridget began to find herself then, and that the way in which she left Mongar was one of those shocks which make a woman touch reality. It may be only for that once in her life, but she can never be the same again. You have put your brand on your wife, Colin. That is quite plain to me. She has changed inwardly more than outwardly. But she is extremely reticent about her feelings towards you. That in itself is so unlike the old Bridget, and I have no right to put forward my own ideas and opinions. They may be quite wrong. Really, 
the news of eliza lady gaverick's death and of bridget's change of fortune coming just at that moment is the sort of dramatic happening which i as a dabbler in fiction maintain is more common in real life than in novels i am certain that if i had set out to build up the tangled third act of a problem play on those lines i couldn't have done it better all the same i'm very sorry that this change of fortune didn't come off earlier or later for i am well aware of how you will jib at it well i can tell you on her own authority that bridget never wrote to mr maule as she had promised she had no communication with him from the time he left the station until they met on the e and a boat he joined her as you know at the next port above Lauraville. It was rather canny of him to go there, yet I don't see how, in the circumstances, he could have loafed around Lauraville without making talk, though I think it was a great pity he didn't. Of course, he had his own means of communication with the township, and knew she was on board. No one was more surprised than she at his appearance on deck next morning. I don't think, however, that she saw much of him on the voyage. She said that she got a recurrence of the malarial fever off the northern coast and had to keep her cabin pretty well till they reached Colombo. Then she asked him to leave the steamer and take a P&O boat that happened to be in harbour, and this he did do. I am bound to say that Willoughby Moore must have improved greatly since the time when young Lady Gaverick decided he was a bounder. I dare say marriage did him good. I believe that his wife was a very charming woman. Or, it may be that the possession of a quarter of a million works a radical change in people's characters. Or, again, it may be that he is more deeply devoted to Biddy than I, for one, ever suspected. There is no doubt that given the regrettable position, his behaviour in regard to her now is commendable. But Bridget doesn't love him, never has loved him. I state that fact on no authority whatsoever, except my own intuition. Also, I am honestly of opinion she has cared for you more than she has cared for any man. You don't deserve it, and I may be wrong, but nevertheless it is my conviction. Make of it what you please. I have been, I candidly own it, surprised to see what discretion and good feeling she has shown through all this Gaverick will business. There has been a good deal of disagreeable friction in the matter. Lord Gaverick has not come off so well as he expected. He has got the house in Upper Brook Street, which suits young Lady Gaverick and about fifteen hundred a year, considerably less than Bridget. The trouble is that Eliza Gaverick left a large legacy to her doctor, the latest one, and there was a talk about bringing forward the plea of undue influence. That, however, has fallen to the ground, mainly through Biddy's persuasion. I believe it is Biddy's intention to make over Castle Gaverick to her cousin, but this is not given out, and, of course, she may change her mind. And now, Colin, I think I have said everything I have to say. The main point to you is, no doubt, the answer to your question. As I said at the beginning of this letter, Bridget will not oppose any course you choose to take in order to secure your release from her. That is the exact way she worded it. But I cannot believe that, in face of all the rest I have told you, you will go on with this desertion, divorce business, at least without making yourself absolutely certain that you both desire to be free of each other. Remember there has been no explanation between you and Biddy, no chance of touch between the true selves of both of you. Can you not come to England to see her, or should she go out to you? I think it possible she might consent to do so, but I have never broached the idea and cannot say. Yes, of course I understand that this might invalidate the legal position, but as only two years are necessary to prove the desertion, even if you should decide together that it is best to part, isn't it worth while to wait two years more in order to make quite sure? 
no doubt you will say that i am showing the proverbial ignorance of women in legal questions but i can't help feeling that there must be some way in which it could be arranged i do beseech you colin not to act hastily you say that if this divorce took place bridget's reputation would not suffer and that she could marry again without a stain upon her character as they say of wrongly accused prisoners who are discharged but again is that the question i know nothing of your present circumstances health outlook on life anything bridget once hinted to me that you might have your own reasons for desiring your freedom she would give no grounds for the suspicion that there is any other woman in your life i do not think anything would make me credit such a thing and i put that notion entirely out of court i do not know as your letter was dated from leichardt's town whether you still live at mungar it is possible you may have sold the place i hear of severe droughts in parts of leichardt's land but have no information about the lura district now that sir luke tallant has exchanged to hong kong bridget hasn't any touch with leichardt's land and i have very few correspondents there write to me not a stilted legal kind of letter like the last tell me about yourself your feelings your conditions we are old friends friends long before bridget came either into my life or yours you can trust me if you do not want me to repeat to bridget anything you may tell me i will faithfully observe your wishes but i can't bear that you whom i should have thought so well of have felt so much about should be making a mess of your life and that i should not put out a hand to prevent it always your friend joan gildea end of book three chapter ten